One of the things that we've been talking about in the past few weeks has been uh, Nehemiah and his burden and the idea that, that God gives us burdens. And one of the things that we said we would like to do and that we're going to do is every few weeks we're going to have someone that was going to come and share a burden that's on their heart and, and how they've followed through with that burden. But not maybe something necessarily that's part of the ministry of the church. Maybe it's something outside of the church. And a few weeks ago we heard from Janet Satterfield and the burden that she has for Haiti. And so today we have someone else who's going to come share with us about uh, something that God has given them and how they have followed through on that. So we're going to invite Jennifer Barnes to come and share with us. All right. Thank you. First, tell us who you are and... Well, um... I'm Jennifer Barnes, and um, I've been attending CBC since, oh, um, I don't know, probably 2004, maybe 2005. Okay. Um, but actually, the burden that's on my heart actually is one of the reasons that I'm here, that I ended up at Clarksburg Baptist Church. So um, yeah. kind, of, kind of interesting. So what is this ministry outside so of the church? So it's a little place um, off in Webster County, West Virginia, um, off of Lower Williams River Road. Um, a place called Camp Cowan, um, where hundreds of young people get to spend a week um, in the nature of that God created there um, to learn about him, to, ex to accept Christ as their Savior for the first time, to grow their faith, to network with kids from all over the um, West Virginia um, and to build relationships and to, to realize the things that they go through in their daily lives, um, that other people are going through that as well. But I ended up here because I was a counselor one year and um, my husband and I were looking for a new church and Meredith Hill happened to be counseling that, that year and got me talking about what was going on here at CBC and she said, you need to come check us out. And we did and that's why we're here is because of that connection that I made while being a counselor one year at Camp Cowan. So how long have you been part of Cowan in the ministry there? Well, I um, was a camper. Um, fifth grade was the youngest when I went. Then you can, I mean, you can go in the second and third grade. But fifth grade was the first year, and I went every year up until I graduated high school. Um, we were, I, I almost had to miss one year, and I say that almost because the youth group that I was in then was planning a mission trip to Oklahoma, and they picked this week, and I looked at it and said, we can't go that week. That's senior high camp week. We can't go. i got to go to camp, church camp. So they did change it. We went the week before. So. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and I've been a counselor since 1997. I've missed three years. Um, so 15 years I've been going back every um, counseling, and now as the camp nurse for the last probably 10 times I've been there. So what attracted you to this in the first place? Um, camp Callan is where I met Jesus. Um, it's where I started my relationship. And um, when I was in nursing school, I was taking care of a patient and um, just talking to them and found out that they went to a Baptist church and um, connected that we had, you know, older gentlemen um, had been a camper at Camp Cowan and um, connected that way. And I had a three-week break during nursing school and um, I sent a letter to Rob E. Lee at the time and I said, I have these three weeks and God's calling me back. I need to go. Plug me in where you can plug me in. And, and he did that. And it's with uh, my, the week that I'm there is with ninth, 10th, and 11th grader um, high school kids. And I just love it. I love seeing their passion. 
I love seeing unchurched kids um, come to know Christ. I love seeing the connections that are made throughout the state um, that there's people out there that become your lifelong friends that you spend one week one week a year and you start count they start counting down the days until they can go back to spend that week with 14 people in a cabin with no bathroom in bunk beds um, on thin mattresses and one mirror um, and it's amazing the relationships that happen there so what's the burden on your heart that keeps you coming back and, and that is that is truly it it's it's the um, it's the opportunity to serve God for a week serving teenagers to grow closer to him and um, the connections that that to watch those kids make and um, if you've been there as a camper you know what I'm talking about there's just something special about this little neck of the woods that God created that took he took five huge boulders and put them in a circle with a flat space for a campfire and placed rocks to make a perfect Vesper Glen and um, a river and a and a, you have this river that's got all these rapids and then there's a calm area with a beach where hundreds of people have been baptized um, to grow and it is just amazing to see the work that he does there and I look forward to it every year um, I think some people at my 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 work think I'm crazy that I take a week's vacation to work harder in seven days than I do all the time um, at work. Um, you, know, I, you only average about five hours of sleep when you're at camp. Um, but it is amazing to, to watch God work in the lives of young people and, the, and what, what they take out of Camp Cowan stays with them for years to come. Thank you so much for sharing. really rewarding when God puts something on your heart and you follow through, and uh, it's amazing to see what God can do. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah uh, chapter 5, but I have a question. Did you ever get so involved in something? I mean, something worthwhile, something that's really, that's really good, but, but you become so involved in it that you kind of forget about what's going on around you? You just get so focused, and, and sometimes maybe you miss what's going on around you. I know what happens to me sometimes. I'll, I'll be working on the sermon during the week, and I just get so involved, and that's, that's all I can think about. And, and a lot of times I'll, I'll miss things that are, that are going on around me, and it's, uh, it's not a good thing for us to do uh, because we really, as important as our, our ministries are and as important as our calling is, we can't forget about the folks around us. Nehemiah had a great calling. He had a great burden. It was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he recruits and they start the rebuilding project and everything is going going well. But there's opposition that, that comes. So not only is Nehemiah dealing with, with overseeing the work, but Nehemiah is also dealing with this opposition that's coming because they're surrounded by enemies on the north, south, east, and west. They're, they're, they're everywhere. But is it possible maybe that Nehemiah becomes so focused on this rebuilding of the wall that he misses maybe some things that are going on around him, that, that maybe as he's focusing so much on the ruined walls, he might kind of overlook the ruined lives of the people that are around him. We're going to look at Nehemiah 5. 
Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are, are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Basically, what happens here is the people come to Nehemiah and they say, we're fed up. We've had it. We're not taking this anymore. And well, why are they so upset? Well, they're so upset because they are in a bad way. They're in a bad way not because of the work. They're in a bad way not because of the opposition that's outside. But they're in a bad way because they are suffering injustice at the hands of the wealthy. And it's interesting because it's not the wealthy outside. It's the wealthy on the inside. You don't have non-Jews perpetrating these injustices. It's one Jew perpetrating an injustice against another. Satan will try his best to disrupt work. Last week we talked about the opposition that came from without and the surrounding people. But today we're talking about a different kind of opposition that comes in. And I say opposition uh, because, look, these people aren't upset because they're rebuilding the wall. That's a good project. They're all for that. But the opposition that's created is the fact that there is, is all this internal stuff that's going on where people are being cheated and where people are being enslaved and where people are hungry. And it's that kind of dynamic that's going on that will grind this project to a halt just as sure as the opposition that comes from outside. Satan is at work. He'll do anything he can to disrupt God's work. In fact, it's been said that in disputes among believers, Satan remains neutral. And he remains neutral, but then he provides ammunition to both sides. That's kind of what's happening. Verse 6, it says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Uh, he's angered by the obvious injustice. There is obvious injustice going on here, and it angers him. But it's not a, a flare-up like a temple. That better? All right. Sorry about that. We'll figure out what's going on later. Anyway, uh, he's angered, and but it's not the flaring up of his temper, but rather it, he's angry at the injustice that's going on. You know, it's fun. It's interesting if you look at God and the characteristics of God in Scripture. There are times when God gets angry. So if if we 
are God's children, and if we are striving to be like Him, then anger is going to be a part, the right kind of anger is going to be a part of our lives as well. And again, Nehemiah is not angry at the people, but Nehemiah is angry at the injustice that's going on. Now, we live in a world full of injustice. You, you look around the world, there's plenty of injustice. There's social injustice. There's economic injustice. In fact, there's plenty in the global community for the church to become involved in as it relates to injustice that's going on around the world. And certainly it's important for the church to be involved in that. But, but here, we need to be careful about what Nehemiah is experiencing and really about the focus of this passage because Nehemiah is talking about the way one Jew treats another Jew. In our context, how one believer treats another believer. It's confined to that community. So to stay true to the context, what we need to look at today is not how we, as God's people, relate to the injustices that are going on around the world, but rather how we, as God's people, relate to the injustice that's going on between Christians and injustices that are perpetrated on other believers by believers. So that's where we are today as we look at this passage from Nehemiah. So when you perceive injustice that's going on, how do you respond? Uh, do you respond like Nehemiah and, and you get angry, or have we just kind of become numb to the whole thing? Just like with Nehemiah, if we allow these things to continue, then they can grind our work to a halt, just like they affected Nehemiah's work in his day. Nehemiah, though, was smart enough to know that there are different kinds of injustice. There are true injustices that are going on around the world, and then there are manufactured ones that people kind of create for themselves. But Nehemiah, even though this one looked pretty cut and dry, Nehemiah wanted to make sure before he acted. And so what he does in verse uh, 7, it says, it starts out, it says, I pondered them in my mind. What Nehemiah did was he sat down and determined if these facts were true, if these things were really happening, and then he determined a course of action. But continuing in verse 7, it says, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. He personally pondered the situation, again, which is good for us to do. But then when Nehemiah acted, he called a meeting of those who were involved, those who were per perpetrating the injustice. And when he did, actually he treated them in a very humble way. When, when he talked to them, he was not accusing necessarily. I mean, he, he outlined what they were doing, 
But it was a very straightforward way, a non-confrontational, a non-judgmental way. And there are a couple of ways to look at this, and maybe the reason Nehemiah did it that way. The first way is the easy way. We can look at this as here's Nehemiah, one of the greatest leaders of all time. He is close to God. You know, he's got it all going for him. Nehemiah sees that there's shady activity going on. So he calls the people together. He lays down the law. He said, we're not going to do this anymore. Here's what we're going to do. I mean, you can look at it that way. But there's another way to look at it as well. You can dig a little deeper. Maybe you can read between the lines, or maybe you can ask a few hard questions. And if you do that, you might come to the conclusion that one of the reasons Nehemiah handles things this way is the fact that Nehemiah looks at himself and sees that, well, maybe I'm not totally innocent in this affair. I kind of like that second approach. Because as, as leaders, we're, we're not perfect. We are human. We make mistakes. And I really get a lot out of the fact that, that Nehemiah maybe saw in himself something that needed to change. That he wasn't just this perfect guy that came in and was going to straighten everything out. But maybe he had to do some soul searching himself. And that's the way I want to approach this scripture today as we look at it. We spend time pondering the injustice but we have to do a lot of soul searching. We have to look inside of ourselves. We have to consider our own involvement, or maybe our lack thereof, and we have to deal with it with humility. Nehemiah, when he dealt with the injustice that was going on, did several things, and I want us to look at them today. First thing he did was he pointed out the opportunism that was going on. Some people were very opportunistic. What was happening was people needed food. People needed to pay taxes. People didn't have any money. So these guys got together and said, hey, we'll lend you money. We'll charge you these real high interest rates. And for collateral, you've got to put up your property and your working age kids. That's what was happening. They were being opportunistic, but they were making money off the misery of other people. So the relevant question for us is, are we involved in any practices, maybe business or otherwise, in which we profit from somebody else's misery? You might say, well, I, I don't loan people money and charge them high interest rates. And, hey, I really feel for the poor, so I, I give money to the food pantry. I give food to the food pantry so that they can help feed other people. And those are good things. But... Look below the surface. You see, it's easy for us to look at those things, kind of pat ourselves on the back and think we're okay. But once we start digging and looking a little below the surface, we might be surprised at what we find. You know, e even though I don't purchase a lottery ticket, I benefit from the lottery. I do. I, I don't have to spend a dime. I don't have to buy a lottery ticket to benefit from the lottery, whether it's an improved education, whether it's improved infrastructure, the older I get, the senior benefits, all of those things, all of those things I benefit from and never go out and buy a ticket. So here's the question. With, with a clear conscience, with a clear conscience, is it okay for me to reap benefits from that? Research shows 
that lotteries set off a vicious cycle that not only exploits low-income individuals' desires to escape poverty, but also directly prevents them from improving upon their financial situation. In other words, for me to win, even if I don't play, for me to win, somebody else has to lose. And who's losing more? It's low-income folks who can't afford it to begin with. And guess what? Some of those people are Christians. So I have my fellow Christians who are out there losing money, their hard-earned money, God's money, and guess what? I'm benefiting from it. Now the question is, is it right for me to benefit from that? Now don't get me wrong. You all know if you've been here for any time, I'm not a fan of the lottery, but this isn't a slam on the lottery. What this is is to get us to realize that, that there are ways that which we perpetrate injustices on other people without raising a finger. And we really have to examine our own lives and get below these surface, pat ourselves on the back kind of things to really see ways in which we as God's people are causing a hardship on other people, our fellow believers, really have to do some soul searching. Another thing Nehemiah does was he points out the absurdity uh, of, of what the people were doing. What they were doing, they were rescuing people who had been sold into slavery. The, the people in the outlying areas, they were, they were rescuing them by buying them back, by buying their freedom. But then what they were turning around and doing is by their loaning or lending practices, they were enslaving them again. And Nehemiah says, that's absurd. He said, you're buying them back only to enslave them again. That makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. So here's the question for us. We invite people to come to know Christ. We invite them to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ to find freedom in Christ. And then once they come, then we have all these man-made rules that we make up that basically enslave them again. Instead of them knowing the freedom that comes in Christ, we create our own little rules and regulations that they have to follow. We say you got to worship a certain way, you got to pray a certain way, you got to dress a certain way, and pretty soon Christianity, instead of freedom, becomes a slavery to a list of do's and don'ts. So we have to be careful about that. Something else he says is he says to them, he says, you guys need to fear God. You really have to have a healthy fear of God. And so our question is, do our actions show that we really have a healthy fear of God, that we really realize that our actions have consequences? You know, injustice is contrary to God's Word and God's will. And so for us to be a part of these kinds of injustices that go on with our fellow believers, for us to be a part of that and think that we can just do it and there are no consequences, we're wrong. Because we have to look at it in the fact that, look, okay, maybe nobody else knows about it, but God does, and God's the one we have to answer to. So we need to have a healthy fear of the things that we do and examine everything that we do in light of, is this something that really shows a respect, a healthy fear for God? Something else is he points out that it's a terrible witness for God among the non-believers. Like I said, they're surrounded. 
So, so all of these non-believers are looking at them about this God to see if this God is real. They've already been making fun of God. But what their actions do shows the rea- the, whether or not their faith is real. It's that way for us. Our actions show whether or not what we say we believe is real or not. What we do a lot of times as believers is we just kind of reinforce the stereotypes that other people have of Christians. Instead of showing them what true, true Christianity is all about. You know, there's a real correlation between the effectiveness of our work and how we treat one another. It really is. Everybody's looking at us. Jesus said that people will know you are my followers by the way you love one another. He says, look, love one another. This is how people will know whether or not you are my followers. Didn't say they'll know it by the service you do. He didn't say they'll know it by the fact that you're in worship every Sunday. He said, he didn't say you'll know it by the fact that you serve on a board or a committee in the church. He didn't say they'll know it because you're a pastor. Jesus said, they'll know it because of the way you love one another. So that's how we show our community, our world, that our faith is real. That's how we show them that we are truly followers of Jesus Christ. So it's so important for us to realize that loving one another is key. It doesn't, none of the other stuff really matters if we don't love one another. Because people are not going to see the true Christ in what we do. Something else Nehemiah does is he gives his personal testimony, pretty much. Uh, He says, look, my family and my officials are loaning money also. Now, was Nehemiah guilty of charging high interest on the money that he loaned? Maybe, maybe not. Some commentators say yes. An equal number of them say no. But that's really not the, the, the issue here. What happens is that Nehemiah at least looks at his own practices. Nehemiah sees what's going on. And Nehemiah sees that there is, there's injustice in the way money is being loaned. And Nehemiah says, look, we've been loaning money too. And so he includes himself in that. Nehemiah takes a hard look at his practices. He doesn't tell us what his practices were. That's fine. But he takes a hard look at them. And we need to examine ourselves as well. That, you know, sometimes, you know, we shake our heads and and we point our fingers and we say, this is wrong and this is wrong and that person's wrong and all of this kind of stuff. But before we start doing that, maybe, maybe we need to look at our own actions or our own inactions in certain situations. You know, I, I have never knowingly uh, refused to feed someone who was hungry. I have never loaned money to anybody and charged them an outrageous interest rate. But what I really do is I need to look at myself and, and say, well, okay, but I'm a citizen of the church community. So what else possibly have I done? When I look at at other people and I say, you know, what they're doing is wrong. Do I in turn look into myself and say, well, maybe I might be guilty 
of that same thing as well. That inner look and that willingness to identify with the problem. Because Nehemiah, when he includes himself, he says we, let us. He says, let us return the property. Let us return the interest charge. What Nehemiah is saying is, look, we all need to repent and give back. Some may be guilty to a larger extent, but the, but the issue for Nehemiah was that, look, we all need to examine what injustice we are a part of, and we need to repent of that, and we need to give it back. Sometimes it's easy to say, okay, I'll stop doing it. But we really never pay back what we took. Nehemiah is saying do both. Don't just stop it. Give it back. Give it back. I'm sure there might have been a few people that said, well, we already spent it. But Nehemiah says, look, give it back. Give it back. Now, when you get to verse 12, how did the people respond? Well, they said, we will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Again, Nehemiah gets this kind of response, I believe, in a large part because he identified with it. He identified with it. He set the example. He took the oath along with everyone else. And I think as you read the rest of this chapter, you will see how Nehemiah indeed carried through, that Nehemiah continued to set the example. He didn't just tell the people to do it. He did it himself. In fact, down in verse 15, Nehemiah could have had all the luxuries that were due the governor of where he was. But Nehemiah set the example. In verse 15 it says, But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead of increasing his wealth, Nehemiah became generous. So the question for us is, what kind of example are you setting? What kind of example are you setting by the way that you live your life? Not just to the world outside, but to the people that are your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What kind of example? Are, are you pointing fingers and pointing out injustice all over the place without looking inside of you and saying, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of the problem? It's important for us to do that. And not only do we ask, what kind of example am I? But we need to ask ourselves, is this something we're going to take care of in this generation so that our children don't have to deal with it? Or are we just going to pass it off? What kind of examples are we going to be to them? Are we going to show them what true justice and true love is like? Or are we going to be bad examples for them so all that they will do is just perpetuate it? It's an important decision we have to make, but first, we have to look inside and look deep and respond accordingly. Let's pray.